going to jump into our uh, series this morning. We're actually in week four of our six-part series called Dead Man Walking, and it really is the series that leads up to Easter. And that phrase is such a strange and, and weird phrase, dead man walking. But it's a phrase in our culture and in our context that really describes somebody who has committed a capital offense, and they are walking to their death. It's the last walk that they make from their cell to the execution chamber. And, and although they're not dead yet, we say that they are a dead man walking because their death is so eminent and so real and so certain that it's as if they are already dead. And we are using that phrase to actually describe the incarnate life and ministry of Jesus. That as he stepped into ministry, his death was so real and it was so certain that it loomed over every act that he did. Every miracle he engaged in, every act of compassion, every teaching that he gave, his death was so eminent. And so every step he made was one step closer to Jerusalem and and one step closer to the cross. And so we've really been looking, and um, for these six weeks, we're, we're looking at six defining moments in Jesus' ministry as he heads to the cross, um, as he heads to what, what we celebrate as Easter. And so uh, our first two weeks, we looked at the baptism of Jesus, and then we looked at the temptation of Jesus. And in some ways, we kind of looked at how those two things are incredibly connected, that there was this amazing spiritual high of his baptism, and then there was like this temptation and challenge that followed it. There was a baptism, and then there was a battle. There was a voice from heaven, and then there was a voice from hell. There was comfort, and then there was conflict. There was water, and then there was a desert. And those two so often go together. And then we looked at Jesus' teachings last week. We looked at how Jesus' teaching can always uh, be hung on this concept and this idea of repent or turn, change your thinking. The kingdom of God is near. And we looked at the first um, nine blessings that come up in Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He says these nine blessings of, of those who are important in the kingdom. And it's this great surprise, it's this great reversal, because it's never who you thought it was going to be. It actually turns out that in the kingdom of God, the important people, the valuable people, the worthy people, those are the poor. Those are the tossed aside. Those are the ones who long for justice in this world. And Jesus understands the depths of our humanity and basically says that the more in touch we are with the deepest brokenness and parts of being a human, our lack of power, our longing for something better, that that the kingdom of God is actually close to you. Now, this week we're going to be looking at, um, at what comes next. Jesus kind of walks down from the mountain and Matthew sets up the story to say that then Jesus walks down from the mountain and then tells us these nine stories, these nine healing stories. And in each one of them, there's like a person who is sick or broken or in danger and he heals and he saves them in these miraculous and supernatural ways. And so we're going to read the first part of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read it together. It's a little longer than we typically read. So what I want you to do in your mind as I'm reading it is sort of imagine it like the scene from a movie. If you need to close your eyes, you can. But imagine it. So as it says, like, hey, stretched out his hand. Imagine a hand being stretched out, right? So you're going to play it out in your mind as I read it. It'll help you pay attention and see it happening. So here it is, Matthew 9, 1 through 17. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, Large crowds followed him. 
A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourselves to the priests and offer the gift Moses command as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and I and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to the servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would be. And his servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. He got up and began to wait. She be, got up and began to wait on him. When the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all of the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, I don't know how you approach the miracle stories of Jesus. For a long time, probably rose up in most popularity between in the 1980s and then even in the early 2000s, there was this huge skepticism about Jesus' miracles. There was this sort of like, nah, it couldn't have happened, it's supernatural, we can't believe them because stuff like that doesn't happen. And so there was this skepticism about it being a trick or maybe a myth or a legend. It, it wasn't really true. Now, what is super interesting is a lot of that is, is dying down. Maybe some academics still hold those views and still fight that fight. Maybe some older generations still hold on to that. But a lot of younger generations are beginning to say, no, 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 I, I have room to believe in the supernatural. I believe that it's possible. I, there's a category in their brain to hold on to the supernatural. And I don't know if it's because of, like, the Final Destination movies or Marvel Comics But somehow, there is this category for some of our younger folk to believe in the supernatural and hold on to that. Now, for many of us, we think like, oh, well, the believing category probably makes it easier to understand what Jesus is doing. It's better to believe than to be skeptic. But the problem is that I often find is that people that believe in the supernatural work of Jesus treat it just like they treat Final Destination, And treat it just like they treat superhero movies or Harry Potter or anything like that. It's kind of this sort of uh, value of entertainment. They sit and they watch and they go, whoa, did you you just see that? that? That's crazy. And then they shut off the TV or they close their Bible and they walk out of the door and that is what it is, the end. We treat it like entertainment because that's the category that we have to put the supernatural in. It's 
fanciful. It's entertainment. That's really all that it is. It, it happened then and there. It happened on the screen. It happened during that time. It happened in that book. It happened in that other universe. And, but we believe that it has very little impact on the here and now, what's happening right now in our lives and in our world and in the lives of our neighbors. We don't really think it has a lot of say or a lot of meaning or purpose. And in order to understand what we're supposed to do with what we just read, in order to understand how it impacts us, we have to figure out why Jesus did this in the first place. What was he trying to do? Why did he heal people? Why was this so important? Why did he perform miracles? Was it just for entertainment because there was no Netflix? Or was there something else going on? I mean, think about this. This just popped in my head. Think about this for a second, right? Like, you binge watch Netflix and you just, like, auto-replay. I sort of think the way that Matthew describes the healings that happened in front of Jesus, it kind of was like binge-watching miracles. Oh, here comes another leper. Oh, here comes a paralyzed person. Oh, they're blind. Here he comes. And you're just, like, on the edge of your seat, and you don't have to stop it. It just keeps rolling. Anyways, okay. Binge-watching Jesus miracles. Got it. Okay, so what is happening? What is going on here? Well, the first thing is at the end of the passage that we just read, Matthew makes it really clear that this, the whole reason that Jesus, one of the whole reasons Jesus did miracles was so that he could confirm his identity, right? Matthew says at the very end, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. This was to fulfill some of the prophecies that had been given in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had said, hey, the Messiah is going to look this way. The Messiah is going to do these things. The Messiah, Messiah is going to heal people. So when you start seeing that, Know that this may be the Messiah. Pay attention. And so Jesus is healing people in order to confirm the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. But the way that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority is unique. It demonstrates not just that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, but also that he has all the authority of God. Look at it in the centurion's, when, the, when he heals the centurion's servant. When the centurion goes to Jesus and says, hey, heal my servant, Jesus says, hey, I'll come. And the servant goes, no, I too am a man under authority. This basically means that the centurion understands what authority is all about. He understands that when you say something, it happens, right? The centurion had a number of soldiers. And in that sphere of influence, whatever he said happened, when he told them to go do something, they had to go do it. It was law. When he told them to come close, it was law. They had to do it. He understood what it meant to have a sphere of authority. So when the centurion tells Jesus, no, 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 you don't need to come. I understand that if you just say a word, it'll happen. What the centurion is saying is he's acknowledging that Jesus has a sphere of authority, that he is in control of the supernatural, that he has divine authority, that he is God. Now, based on the miracles that Jesus performed, based on his sphere of authority that we see through his miracles, his sphere of authority included our bodies, our mouths, our legs, our eyes, our breath, our reproduction uh, systems, our skin, our health, life, and death. It included our minds, it included the spiritual realm and all of the spiritual beings that inhabited it. It included nature, water, wind, the earth. These are all spheres of Jesus' authority. He has control over all of them. 
But the miracles that Jesus did, they do remind us of who he is, that he is God, and they also remind us of his ultimate authority, that he is in control of all of these things. But, but the way that Jesus did miracles actually showed us more than that. If he was just proving his identity and his authority, he would have done what Iron Man, Iron Man does when he's trying to prove how powerful he is, right? He holds out his hand and he goes, and he like blows something up, right? Does anybody know Iron Man? Okay, good. I'm right hand, and then it goes, he doesn't do that though. It's much more powerful than that. Okay, so he blows something up, and then everyone's like, oh, Iron Man, he's so awesome and crazy. Jesus, if he was just trying to prove his identity and just trying to prove his authority, he could have like blown up a mountaintop. He could have levitated a house. He, he could have thrown himself off a temple and how his angels catch him, just like Satan wanted him to do. But he doesn't do any of those things. Jesus never sort of does these raw displays of power. Why? Because what he is doing is not just to demonstrate his divine authority or prove that he's God. Instead, he's doing something so much bigger. Jesus' miracles give us a glimpse into the ultimate restoration of the world that the kingdom he's establishing is all about. When, when he performs miracles, most of the time they have to do with dealing with the suffering of the human race. And when he engages in these miracles, he gives us these glimpses of what has happened in the past, where we've been in the past, and he gives us glimpses of where we're going in the future, glimpses of what's going to happen in the future. Now, when he gives us these glimpses into the past, he actually gives us a window to peek into of the garden, he gives us this picture to peer into of how the world was created when there was no sin and no brokenness, where we as people like just hung out. Like that's how the world was supposed to be. And we got to be in this perfect relationship with each other and with creation and with God, how it was supposed to be back in the garden. And so when Jesus feeds the hungry, he's giving us a glimpse back to the beginning when there were no children who were dying of starvation. And when Jesus heals the sick and he makes the leper whole and when he raises the dead, he gives us this glimpse back to when there was no suffering and no disease and no death. And when he stills the storm, he gives us this glimpse back to when nature was a friend. There was no suffering or dying because of earthquakes or tsunamis or hurricanes or tornadoes. See, Paul in the book of Romans actually reminds us that it is not just our humanity that is broken by sin. All of creation is broken by sin. And in Romans, he says that we know that the whole, uh, the whole of creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Now, when we think that Jesus, when we think of the miracles that Jesus performed, a lot of times we think that in that moment, Jesus like suspended the natural laws that exist in this world. He said, stop. So the natural, we think that the natural laws are like death and decay and destruction and disease. We think that those are the natural laws and that when Jesus brought in some healing, he temporarily said, stop, heal. Okay, go back right? We think that that's what's happened, but actually that's not true. Actually, what happened when Jesus performed a miracle is that Jesus actually restored the natural laws, that things are not supposed to be dead and decaying and diseased, 
that that is actually the unnaturalness of our world. The way that it was naturally supposed to happen, the miracles show us what the world was supposed to be like, how it was supposed to happen. The decay and the destruction and the death is a suspension of God's natural order. And Jesus' miracles happen and they put together again or restore, at least temporarily, the, the way things were supposed to be. There's one theologian that said it this way, that Jesus' miracles are actually the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonic, and wounded. I mean, think about that. That that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus also, his miracles also give us glimpse forward to when Christ will come and restore and return, return and restore all things. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, he actually says it this way. He says this. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and they will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the feast that Jesus is talking about there is actually a feast that's referred to a lot in the Old Testament and also in the book of Revelation, which tells us about sort of the end times, what will happen at the end And Jesus is declaring that when the Messiah and the Savior comes, there was sort of this idea that when the Messiah and Savior comes, that he was going to heal everything. And that it's going to be like this big feast, this big party. And and, and so many people will be invited. In the book of Revelation, John describes the party this way. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And then they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be his God. He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated at the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. John, who was given this vision and this revelation, he's saying that there's going to come a time when there's going to be no more sickness, No more disease, no more suffering, no more decay, no more cancer, no more strokes, no more Alzheimer's, no more war, no more murder, no more suicide, no more depression, no more addiction, no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes, no more death, no more broken relationships, no more tears. The healings that Jesus performed were a glimpse of what is to come. This big feast, this amazing party when Jesus returns. His miracles declared, I know that things are not the way that they were when I created the world. Jesus is saying, I know that you are having to deal with a world that is broken. And it's not the way that it was created to be. But this is not the end of the story. There is something more. There is something healthier. There is something better that is coming. Remember, Jesus is just as unhappy 
about the way things are in this broken, sinful world as you and I are. If you look around and you see people that are struggling, if you see people that are hungry, if you see people that are suffering with cancer, people that are dying or are taking their own lives or or children that are being displaced by the ravages of war, and you cry out, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Something needs to be done about this. You need to know that Jesus also declares, it's not right. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But instead of him saying something needs to be done about this, what Jesus says is something is being done about this. This is being set right. This brokenness is being undone and the sickness is being healed and death is being conquered. Every healing Jesus performs is Jesus saying that this is what the whole world is going to look like someday. We're in the middle of the book right now. but This is how the story ends. That's good news. Every miracle Jesus does declares that healing is not just coming. It's actually also declaring that ultimately Jesus will deal with death and suffering, injustice and disease and hunger, but not just in the future. Jesus wants to deal with it now. And we as followers of Christ are invited to join with him. In Matthew 10, which is the chapter that immediately follows these nine stories of healings, what happens is Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, now you go do it. He gives them power and authority and he sends them out and he says, now go do it. Oh, followers of me. Remember, to be a follower of Jesus means that you follow. Go do it. Now, I think about that, and if I was there, I'd just laugh in Jesus' face. And in some ways, in my heart, I'm also laughing in Jesus' face because I'm just like, wait, you want me to do what? You got to be crazy. I, I can't do those things. I can't fix all the... Do you know how broken this world is? I can't do all of that. You're crazy. I can't heal and I can't fix. But I think that what Jesus is actually asking us to do is he's actually asking us to do what he did. That as we are walking, that we would open our eyes to see the people around us and begin to provide glimpses of the one who can fix it. The one who can bring restoration and healing in life. That's, that's what we as a church did when we went over to Eugene's property and we fixed it up. We provided this glimpse of, hey, this rundown, broken, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And we provided a glimpse. It's what we're trying to do while we're, the reason we're partnering with the Little Free Pantry. We're not trying to solve all of hunger. We're trying to provide a glimpse and say, hey, here's a meal. In the future, there will be no more hunger. And so here's a glimpse of what it looks like and what it will be like. This is what we do when we sit with a friend who's depressed and lonely. This is what we do when we include someone who is new. When you see the pain and you provide a glimpse of what the world has once been like and what the future of the world will be, you, you give a glimpse of what Jesus is making happen and has made happen. 
Now, I know that it sometimes feels like this world is too broken to do that, that it's, it, the pain is just too overwhelming. And so it's much easier to go through life with these blinders that say, no, I'm not going to look and I'm not going to see. I'm going to focus on what is right in front of me. I'm going to focus on my job and my work and my family. And even when there's something that pops up in my family that's a little painful, we're just going to sweep that one under the rug and just keep these blinders on. I know that that is tempting because the pain is so overwhelming. But Jesus wants those who follow him to have this unflinching willingness to look at sorrow and anguish and injustice and brokenness and not blink. And then to provide a glimpse of the one who can heal it all. Now, C.S. Lewis um, said it this way. He said that Christianity is a fighting religion. When we see cancer or a slum, we say, that ought not to be, and we do what we can. There's a historian, his name is Rodney Stark. He actually wrote a book about the rise of Christianity in the early centuries of the church and why it succeeded, why it went from this little marginalized sect to this very uh, uh, culture-shifting and culture-changing thing in the Greco-Roman world. And Stark said that one of the reasons is because when the plagues swept through the great cities of the Greco-Roman world, the people were literally dying in the streets. Many of those who followed Jesus responded in these super countercultural ways than, than the rest of society. The first major plague actually happened in 165 A.D., And another plague happened about 100 years later. And these plagues were so devastating. And so they were so devastating that people stopped taking care of the ones who were sick. And they actually just fled. They just found some remote place to go hide out from the disease. Try to get away from it all. But many Christians didn't do that. There were a couple eyewitness accounts that I wanted to read you that Stark uncovered in his research. One account said this, the doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. The people became afraid to visit anyone. And as a result, thousands of people died and no one looked after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all of the inhabitants perished through the lack of attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other. Half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about the streets. Sounds like a horror film. There was another account that he said that the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their dearest, often throwing them into the road before they were dead, hoping to avoid contagion. But Stark points out that many of the Christians responded in a vastly different way. They stayed, not only to take care of their own, but they took care of others as well. This is how another eyewitness accounts for what the Christians did. Most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended their very need, ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their lives serenely happy, for they, uh, for they were inflicted by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, many in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died 
in their stead. Now, where do you think these Christians got this idea to respond to the brokenness of those around them by laying down their own lives to save another? They got it from the one that they follow. On the cross, Jesus entered into our brokenness so that we might enter into his wholeness. That's what Matthew is reminding us in this section. He says it in verse 17. Jesus, he took up our infirmities. He carried our diseases. If this isn't a picture of unflinching willingness to look at suffering and not blink while providing a glimpse of the one who will restore the whole world, I don't know what is. Now, I know that we are far from the plagues. That's not the world we live in right now. But the reality is, is if you look to your right and to your left, there are people right next to you that are sitting in pain and brokenness. You don't have to go far. They're right here. They're in this room. They're in your families. They're your neighbor. And you can show up. You can see them. You can take the blinders off and really see them. And you can give them a glimpse of the one who will restore the world. You can show up and sit in silence and in the darkness and in their loneliness. You can clean their toilet. You can take care of their children. You can feed them. You can give them glimpses of the one who will one day make the world right again. Now, how did Jesus deal with our brokenness? He bore it. If Jesus came to judge the world, he, he would have judged all the evil, and in the process, he would have destroyed all the evil, which meant he would destroy us also. We are impacted by sin and brokenness. But Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He, he came to bear our judgment. He came to bear all that is ours, all of our disease and all of our brokenness and all of our weakness and all of our suffering and all of our death. On the cross, all of that was placed on him. He bore the judgment so that one day he could come back and end all sin, all the evil and all the brokenness of this world, end it all, but not end you and me because we were connected to him. It's strength through weakness, and he calls us to do the same. And so how do we deal with the brokenness and the injustice and the sickness that we see in our families and in our friends and in those that are sitting next to us and in those in our city? How do we deal with the cancer and the slums? We become weak. The only way that Jesus showed us was to lay down our lives. And it's only possible because Jesus already did that for you and for me. Now I'm going to invite the band to come up. And during this next song, we're going to pass out communion, which is this reminder of what Jesus did for us. That his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that we could have this restoring and reconciling relationship with Jesus. That, that what he will one day do in the end can happen in our lives right now. 
And for some of you, I know that this is the first time that you've ever heard this before. And, and, and this is new information for you. And I want to invite you to participate in communion as a way of saying, yes, I accept what Jesus did for me. I accept that reconciliation. And for others of you, this may be, you've, you've accepted Jesus before. This isn't your first time, but maybe for you, you hear this in a new way. And so I want to invite you to take the cup and to take the wafer. To once again remember what Jesus did for us and what he calls us to do for others. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good, good God. You are a good God that does not abandon us, but instead finds a way You are a great God. I thank you that you are the one, no matter what our sickness, our disease, our brokenness is, you say, I've come. You say, yeah, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And I've come. And so, Father God, I ask that you would be in this place right now. I ask that you would bring healing. We know that it is coming. We know that it will come. But we also ask, please, that that you would have heaven come to earth now. That for us who are struggling or broken or hurting, that you would bring your healing presence. That you would restore the laws of nature. that, That it would be made right and we would be made whole. But even if not... We still trust that you are a God who will one day bring all things back to the good that you have created them. And so, Father, would you speak to us now? Would you allow us to walk in a way that that allows us to see what others are experiencing and the pain that is going on? Would you give us wisdom to provide glimpses of who you are? We pray all of these things. In your holy and precious name. Amen.